What's up? Welcome back. This is Founders Talk. If this is your first time listening, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you haven't yet, subscribe at founderstalk.fm. On today's show, I'm talking to Joe Percoco. Joe is the co-CEO of Titan, a premier investment manager, but for everyone, it is an investment company, a media company, and a tech company all rolled into one. Mid last year, they closed a $58 million Series B round led by Andreessen Horowitz at a $450 million valuation. And they currently have $750 million in assets managed and more than 35,000 clients. Why should Titan exist? In Joe's words, quote, Wall Street ignores everyday investors and caters only to the ultra wealthy. This divide doesn't sit well with us, so we built Titan, end quote. On today's show, Joe shares the journey, the whys, the hows, and the sequencing it might take to get to a trillion dollars of assets managed. Big thanks to our friends and our partners at Fastly for having our back, our CDN back, that is, our assets, our MP3s, everything we ship is fast worldwide because of Fastly. Check them out at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics light extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. Joe, welcome to Founders Talk. Big fan of what you're doing at Titan. Big fan of sticking it to the man. Basically, which is kind of, I think, what you're trying to do here with Titan, right? I mean, Titan, you were in the game at Goldman Sachs. Long history, we'll go through it all. But you really wanted to open up the idea of investing for everyone. And crypto is the big market you're launching into now. But just restructuring how I would say the world looks at access to gain wealth through investment. Would you agree that's kind of what you're doing now? Probably not too far off. Yeah. To, yeah, honestly, it was just pretty eye-opening. Uh, there were two entirely different worlds. We almost like used a restaurant analogy here internally. There's like a back of the restaurant and the front of the restaurant. And once you see both, you just sort of can't accept that only certain people get access to one. In particular, I'm from a small town in Jersey. So yeah, it, it, Titan in a sense was a you know pirate ship to set out to sea to go attack the new world sort of thing. At the risk of doing a terrible job of explaining what Titan is, can you give me kind of a just a precursor. It might be going back to how you began, but just help me understand and help the audience understand what Titan is today. Yeah, we're a new guard investment management platform. Just so to speak, very simply, people give us their hard-earned savings or capital for us to manage in our investment products. We have four or five at a large cap growth one focused on identifying blue chip compounders. Women opportunities one focused on rising stars. We have a crypto product we just launched, focused on identifying the best crypto assets right to outperform. And so we're going to keep launching new products and different asset classes. And ultimately, what the mutual fund was for the baby boomer generation, we aim to be that for ours. What's the problem with access to this kind of wealth building tooling? Like, maybe go into this side where, I guess, to some of your history, really, with Goldman Sachs and just kind of seeing behind the like you had said with the restaurant analogy, like getting to go beyond that door where the food comes out, 
you got to go behind the scenes to build wealth for the ultra wealthy, I'm sure. What did you see? What did you come back with? And how did that change for you to like build what Titan is today? Yeah, from so worked at Goldman. I was also in the hedge fund industry for a bit of time. The thing to do when you come out of Penn, I went to Wharton, is go work at these prestigious investing institutions. And so it was just night and day, like frankly. When you consider if you're just a normal investor and what are the things you're told to do with your money? There's like usually a long list of things in some financial blog. You'll probably hear the term diversified ETF. They'll probably ask you a lot of bespoke questions. You'll leave with a shoulder shrug. Then maybe you go ask your friend or your family what I should do. And you're probably in a hodgepodge of things, different flavored ETFs. Maybe you buy a few stocks here and there. And that's sort of like the core retail experience is what I've described. I went through it personally. Mm-hmm. If you're able to get a ticket to the back of the restaurant, it's just night and day. You've got effectively like a waiter coming up to you saying, just sit down. I'm going to get you access into the best of the best. Hedge fund vehicles, venture funds, private equity. You tell us, you want the chef's tasting menu? Great. If you want to go meet the chef, let's go behind the scenes. And it's just an entirely different ballgame. It's just so ironic, just like the, like, for example, some of these big institutions, some of these big Ivy League institutions will write economic PhD papers and say, here's how you should invest your money. It's the academic proof way. But then if you ask the university itself, the thing that actually has billions of dollars in an endowment. So are you taking that approach with how you invest that money? And it's the exact opposite. They're putting it in all the elite vehicles. And that was just a dichotomy that. I just found insanely, insanely frustrating. How do you do differently then? In a world that seems very gatekeepy, how do you how do you do differently? How do you get special access or how do you go and be the waiter and give access to these special chef's menus and whatnot? Yeah, feel free to slow me down wherever you need to. But because of technology, you can actually change certain categories, in particular like wealth management. So let's flip the script. Why does someone who creates a business, an elite business, say, I'm going to do it for accredited investors or institutional investors only. So let's talk about like the supply side, the people who are saying, I'm going to go to build a business for the back, forget the front. They're not irrational. The people in the front have a lot of money, a lot of hard-earned savings that add up to trillions of assets. So why are they building the business in the back? There's two primary reasons. One is the cost to serve the incremental customer in the back is way less, i.e. I can go get one $10 million check, or I can go try to manage thousands of $1,000 checks. I'm just going to do the one check because great. Obviously, it's way harder and you have to go try to pitch a lot of people to get that one $10 million check. But if you do it, your cost profile is way different. You have one effective customer instead of 10,000. And then the second is from a legal standpoint, there were easier constructs way back when to just do it for accredited and institutional investors only. And so with the advent of the mobile phone, what you can do is basically gather together millions of people at once and enable them to organize and do things. So for example, a very colloquial example, a million people at once can go like a, a Nike shoe drop on Instagram. That's effectively a million people organizing to do a singular action, which is go heart the latest Nike shoe drop. Imagine if a million people organized at once to to produce $10 billion and say, hey, Mr. Hedge Fund Portfolio Manager, you currently manage $5 billion. Delete your job. We're going to pay you as much, but just come do it for regular Americans. And so with technology, you can organize people en masse at a much lower cost and create a much better experience. So all this sort of stuff that for right reasons and wrong reasons was locked and let's call it the back of the restaurant, can finally be unlocked. Yeah, because I mean, how often do you go to a restaurant, despite the style of menu or cost on the menu, can you actually go into the back of the house as a patron? You can't. Yeah. You can't go back and talk to the chef. Maybe you can tell your waiter, say, hey, can you have the chef come see my table? I want to I want to thank him. Or, what, or maybe that's a possibility. And they're still coming to the front of the house to talk to you, but you're not going back there to see the the secrets. You're not going into the cooler to see how they've got the chickens marinating or whatever. Like you're not going to get to see the the secret sauce of how you build the recipes and how everyone's just working. You just, it's locked away. It's for a certain type of person who can see that essentially. Yeah. And it's um, so philosophically different. It's like the way we approach a normal person 
and say, what should we do with your money? We're going to buy the entire supermarket, every product in the supermarket, good or bad. That's effectively what a diversified ETF is. We're going to buy every company in the U.S. economy. We're just going to buy it and bet that the U.S. grows. If you are a credited investor in an institution, what they say is like they walk up to you as you walk in the supermarket. We're going to actually try to pick out for you what are the best products that you should own and create that basket instead. And we're going to do one in the United States. We're going to create a China basket for you. We're going to do a Latin American private equity basket. And this just sort of investing acumen for the reasons I mentioned earlier just was never accessible by everyone. And now mobile technology is enabling access to many, many different things that historically have been locked off. Mm-hmm. Our view is that wealth management is one of the last guarded bastions that we can unlock for a lot of people in a way that it was historically locked. Yeah, I'd say so. Even platforms like TikTok seem to spread ideas really well. Do you play in that arena at all? Is that sort of like even social media mobile? I'm sure you're talking about mobile apps and mobile access, but do you speak to the TikTok audience by any chance? Like it seems like it to be a very, at least my perspective, and maybe that's my, my usage of TikTok is just like really about growing my motivational streams and information streams that help me better who I am. Not just entertaining with cat videos, for example, like people think it's just teenagers on their dancing and it's, it's just not, there's a lot more of information on TikTok. I'm just curious of your perspective on how you leverage that kind of in mass opportunity. Like that many people, that kind of virality. It's critical across any business, like in the history of humanity. One of the most important things you need to get right is distribution. It's sort of like, who cares if you produced the best product in the world, if you cooked the best apple pie, it doesn't matter. Sort of like if the the tree falls in the forest and no one's around, did it make a sound? Same thing as a business. If you build a good product and you don't have distribution, do you even have a business? And so I pay very, very close attention to where audiences are in mass, because that is what's called distribution. Those are the, what was the town square, what was the OG amphitheater where people came together and discovered services, discovered ideas, debated things, dialogued, that has just shifted online. And so one needs to pay close attention to where are these digital town squares forming, because those are the best ways to enter dialogue about the products and services you have to offer. And so a lot of brands are now going beyond just the, let me pay a TikTok influencer to shout about my brand. How do I build an authentic connection in this digital town square in a way where it cuts through the noise and say, hey, TikTok community, this isn't just another ad for you to scroll through. This is an authentic product that could add meaning to your life that's worth paying for. Click to discover more about it. We're obsessing over that stuff internally. It seems so. And the reason why I ask that is that it seems like the kind of business you're building is, uh, and correct me where I might be wrong or where I might be right, is an investment business with really smart people behind the scenes that know how to invest and know how to lead funds across the different products you have. You have sort of this media side that can be blossoming for you. And then you also have the technology. Like you've got to have those three things in your business. Like to share the message, you've got to do different research. You've got great great content out there. So you're a media business, so to speak, and you want to be able to be authentically connecting to the audience out there. So you want to put these great investment folks behind your products out there, sharing their ideas and sharing how the crypto market's moving or how, you know, there's a dip, so buy or whatever it might be. Like you want to have that heartbeat mentality. So investment media ish business and tech business. Is that spot on? I'm going to push it even further because you're absolutely right which is that yeah. if you think, let's like use the use case of, let's say like you had $100 million. Where do you put your money? Where do you get your content? What technology are you using? Because you don't like the three pillars spot on. You would put your money with some of the world's best financial vehicles, the content that you get to find out how that money is doing. You're not going to mainstream TV to turn on to see what the S&P 500 did. You will literally call up that person And you'll say, hey, it's Adam. I have $10 million with you. Please tell me exactly what's going on and why. And in that phone call exchange, content is produced that's offline. It's a black box. It's just you specific with you and the portfolio manager, whoever's running point on that product. And then the tech is whatever desktop tool you log into to say, okay, here are my PDFs where he's communicated a quarterly letter. And what we're positing is that every part of that can be made better. 
And so notice how the core bridge that I mentioned that you had access to, that maybe the rest of the world didn't, was where you put your money and where you get your content from is the same place. Whereas someone who's, let's say, in like a diversified ETF or like trading their own stocks, they go to a platform, put their money in it, buy and sell stocks. And they have to go to a different platform to try to piece together what's going on. Whether one of these news publishing sites, Wall Street Journal, turn on CNBC, and they basically say, does this CNBC article about COVID driving the markets down 5% apply to my Apple stock here in my brokerage account? Whereas someone who has a direct pipe to the portfolio manager can say, yo, is this COVID announcement that the Fed just published, is that actually going to affect Apple? By which they call back, no, Apple's a compounder, they have pricing power, it maybe will hit some blips, but like in reality, you should just hold on tight. And you just get access to a whole different world of content. So my core job is to build a product like that en masse using technology for everyone. We didn't go too deep into your background, which normally we might do in Thought, but I'd we got barely an hour with you today, so I, I want to kind of laser in. I know of your history, and you've got some experience in that space, so maybe you've met some people, but how did you get to the point where you knew enough to wield these specific tool sets, investment, media, tech, mobile? Like, how did you learn to wield that to what you're doing? How are you doing it? My mother's a software engineer, so I've been watching her write code and ship products ever since I was young. I accidentally went to the best finance school in the country. And then I happened to be privileged enough to get exposed to all these different worlds that I've been describing. And so whereas when I first started Titan, I couldn't quite articulate the business plan. I knew a lot to be dangerous. I said, wait, I know enough about mobile tech. I know all the different dichotomies in investing. And I've studied the subject myself for several years. I'm blanking and I'm getting question marks on why the world works the way it does. And then pitch Titan to 100 venture capitalists. I got rejected 100 times. And they gave me a lot of the same responses. And at that point, it required a deep moment of courage and thought where I looked at all the reasons why they said I was wrong. And I said, I actually think I might be right. <laughs> and it was a contrarian opinion where I had to go get data fast. So it takes humility to be an entrepreneur. You literally, like there's no intellectual right or wrong. It's who brings back data. And so I tested the hypothesis with a V1 product, one single flagship product in a mobile app where a manager could send a piece of video content explaining what's going on. And sooner or later, the product was growing by a million dollars a week. Organically, no marketing. It began to open my eyes that the problem was even bigger than I expected. But to answer your question directly, it was part domain expertise, part leap of faith in a way. So you brought back data. So you got told a lot of times, what were some of the most, what was the overarching you're not doing it? This is wrong. What was the, the main thing being told to you that, that made you think, you know what? I think I'm actually right. Let me get some data. What was that response from them? There was a number of different uh, pieces that they've mentioned. And one was that the end all be all state was all humanity was going to put their capital in just a, a diversified passive ETF. There are certain players that do that really well. And that's just intellectually incorrect from a capital market standpoint. To put it differently, if everybody hit pause and just put their money in a passive ETF, the capital markets would break. Mm. Like the price of Google would then track the exact price of a way worse company. Like literally markets wouldn't function. Because you need the word of mouth, right? Isn't a lot of investing, a lot of trading done upon like, Behind the scenes, people saying, oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about, like, if it's passive, there's nobody talking, right? So if there's nobody talking, there's no motion. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, sort of. So let's say, like, I ran a bad company and you ran a good company, Adam. And we both went to the NASDAQ and said, we're both going to IPO. You deserve to get your money at a way higher price than I do. If everyone invested passively, we'd, we'd both just get the even amount of chips. We'd both get the same. So capital markets where ultimately play judge and jury on companies. Okay, the good companies, we're going to give you capital very cheaply, off to the races, huge valuations, stocks up and to the right. Bad companies, we're going to sell your stock until you prove us wrong. So your stock price is going to track down, signaling you have stuff to work on. If everyone just decided to invest in a passive ETF, everything I just described is non-existent. It's zero. 
everyone gets the same blanket amount of chips. Mm. So that was one piece. Another piece was that the end state humans were that humans won't want. This was before Robinhood took off. And it's funny to remember this world where people were telling me folks don't care about their money. And they were like, people want to just put it on autopilot and never think about it. And I was like, you're going against a century of data. Like, just take a look at stock exchanges across the world. Take a look at TD Ameritrade and E-Trade. And just by looking at those businesses, you'd sense a core human trait that's been around since the Amsterdam Stock Exchange where you could trade the Dutch East India Co. I'm like, you're shorting 400 years of human behavior saying they're never going to care about their money again. So they said, okay, like, but ultimately you have to have humility and say, okay, these people are really smart. They see a lot of companies. Maybe they're right. But if anything, it just should inspire me to go get data even faster. Like there's no, like if you have arrogance in the room, like you could get, end up getting blindsided. And you said then the, the data you went and got was actually shipping a, would you call it an MVP? What would you call it at that point? You said a V1, I think, right? Yeah. MVP. Best data is how people vote with their actions. Yeah. And so the action was you put a mobile site out there, you put some sort of business structure in place enough to attract maybe a friend, I don't know, somebody, a co-founder to be the fund manager, so to speak, of this flagship initial product and no marketing. And it grew, you said, by a million at what clip? And this is million investment, right? This is assets held. There was a time where we were growing like 15% a week, which means you're doubling roughly almost every month. And, you know, at first it's a couple hundred thousand. That's like, okay, we're approaching a million. And it's like, holy moly, we're approaching 10 million. And it's like, wow, like we're approaching 50 million. And like, wait, we just crossed a hundred million. And meanwhile, I know of folks, peers who are in that back of the restaurant world who are struggling to cobble together $5 million checks. And meanwhile, we look down at our mobile app and it's sort of the little mobile app that could. And it's just accumulating millions and millions of assets without marketing. And what was our takeaway was that we're sitting on a nerve. There is an untapped nerve. And the way we would describe it is there's a lot of stuff out there with people's money. Like, come do this, come do that. People largely try it. Okay, I'll download this app. I'll download that app. My uncle told me to buy this stock. I'll try it. But they largely want, they are are very protective of their hard-earned savings. I'll take some part of these savings and buy that stock my uncle told me to buy or that my friend told me to buy. But I'm going to keep the majority, I'm going to keep the lion's share of these earnings over there in my corporate account for my employer or my T. Rowe Price account I inherited for my family. Because that's the safe one. That's the one I can trust. That's the one I think is super smart and thoughtful. But I'll mess around here and there. And so the nerve we felt we were tapping into was a willingness to move the lion's share of one's money for the first time. People were giving us that pool of capital, Mm. not the small. And so on average, our clients give us north of $20,000 per account. And if you took a look at other consumer fintech apps, usually it's in the thousands at best, if not a couple hundred bucks. So inherent about a product, if you can nail it, the whole trust-based coefficient, it unlocks way bigger outcomes. What do you think unlocked that larger check writing? Like if I'm willing to give you not hundreds and thousands, but 20,000-ish on a given account, what was it that you were doing that communicated the safety and the maybe not de-risking it, maybe even explaining the risk differently. How'd you capture that trust? What did you showcase? We turned a black box industry that had probably been a black box for a century into an open box. And what I mean by that, if you think about the mutual fund, which is the hallmark product of everything I'm describing, it's fine product. If Adam gives money to mutual fund, the mutual fund will receive it. Let's say it's a large cap mutual fund. It will invest it in blue chip stocks. But the issue is that the mutual fund doesn't talk back to Adam. It's a black box. I get prospectuses and stuff like that from whomever. I'm like... It's a thick doc you get in the mail and you immediately go, great, thanks mail, into recycling. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. So that's what I mean when I say it's a black box. You maybe go to CNBC to figure out what's going on. You'll see, okay, I'm down 10% this month. Let me try to figure it out myself. And then when you're down, you're like, 
I'm going to reevaluate this whole product I'm in to begin with. You sell your money out of the mutual fund and go with whatever some other person recommends. What we've at scale solved is the ability for Adam to go call that portfolio manager directly. And so the same technology that LeBron James uses, Kevin Durant says, hey, fans, it's I'm here in the Olympics. Look at me. You can give those tools to a manager to say, hey, Adam, you're down 3% in your portfolio this month, but don't worry. That's just because of noise. FYI, it's all looking good from an economic standpoint. Hang on tight. And I've effectively built trust at scale. One single video message can be shipped to a million people at once. This episode is brought to you by PlanetScale, the database for developers. PlanetScale is the only serverless database platform. You can start an instant and scale indefinitely with unlimited connections. The premise is simple. Never think about database servers again. The PlanetScale platform is based on MySQL and Vitesse, which powers Slack, Square, GitHub, YouTube, and more. Everything you want to control is available through the beautifully designed PlanetScale CLI, including their data branching feature, which is the first MySQL platform to allow you to create non-blocking schema changes and integrate your schema changes with your CI/CD processes. PlanetScale is the last database you'll ever need. Learn more and start your database in seconds at PlanetScale.com. Again, PlanetScale.com. saw the video of your co-CEO, which I do have questions on as well, and co-founder Clay Gardner. It was the Q4 update. I haven't watched the full thing, but like this is just seems like a an iPhone set vertical. Someone like even TikTok might express like a, you know, not a horizontal, but a vertical video. So very, yeah. I just shot this on my iPhone. Here's an update. It's got good lighting. Well, sure. Okay, cool. It's a little produced in, in that fact, like you care about the aesthetics, but Here's an update on quarter four. Here's what happened. Here's why it happened. So that's the secret sauce is just communicate, right? The black box is like non-communication. Yeah. The secret sauce is is quite simple, which is enable this manager who used to manage their service via a, a diesel truck piece of technology called Mutual Fund. Give them the same creator tools that we give everyone else to communicate with people at scale. If like, let's say Adam wanted to create a crypto product on Titan, here's like the end master plan, which is opening up the gates, not just our products that we launch on Titan, but giving the tools to anyone who wants to create a financial product, ditch the mutual fund, ditch the ETF, come use a Tesla. Adam can now say, okay, I want to create a crypto product. Let's say he wants to go after niche crypto asset tokens that others haven't yet seen yet, unlike Bitcoin. It's like, okay, he's going to create... He'll, he'll go into the back end of Titan in the manager portal say, okay, here are the six crypto assets I want to trade on behalf of clients. And then when something happens, it's like, okay, I open up the back end Titan app. I want to record a video because crypto is up 20%. I want to send a message to all my clients. I swipe. I literally hold my phone. I record it. I swipe. It gets shipped. It's like a very, very simple proposition. And for some reason, we're the only people who were like, guys, this whole idea of us accepting black box financial products is pretty bad. Like we should collectively try to just delete the whole thing. Just like bad for like four different reasons. Which is bad for progress, right? Like if I'm too scared to invest and I keep all my money, let's say I got more money than the FDIC will even insure in my bank, literal bank, because I'm too scared to invest it. You know, too much fear because of this black box or uncertainty in markets or just I have to assume and make the market choices myself. And I'm just a podcaster. Let's just say, you know, like <laughs> speaking to me, I watch the markets. I pay attention to tech. I, I'm aware of these things, but I'm not a financial expert by any means. I'd love to have one that walks alongside me in processes, but there's not really many places I can go to find that where I can trust the the scenario. So for the progress of the world at large, my money just sits. It doesn't move. And what happens when money doesn't move? No one wins. Nobody. Right. The market doesn't change. The economy doesn't grow. Things don't get built. 
I don't get to lend that money to an innovator or to a tech entrepreneur who builds the next big thing. You know, nothing, it just sort of stagnates and stays still. And so you've been able to market to sort of get a peek behind the scenes. And I guess that's okay if you're making good bets on their behalf, right? So how do you get that part right? Yeah, the the piece to which you described, which is like ultimately like the creator of a financial product should be able to talk to customers. And then like mutual funds, there are good ones and bad ones over time. Right. That's how we weed out all right, you claim to be good at managing capital, but you're not. Goodbye. Do you have people coming to you then building products on your behalf? Is that a part of the, the Titan platform that I'm not aware of? Like, I, I thought that you had your own products. Correct. These are founded by you all. Are you seeing there's a separate silo where any normal person that's not accredited can make their own fund and attract people to put in money? Is that what you're saying? Not yet, but that's the core plan. So you think that that's a direction you can go. If you summarize one of Titan's missions, it would be to render the mutual fund obsolete. Okay. So there are factories. If let's say you wanted to create a product where you say, Hey, I can manage money for people. You basically have two options or three options. You either go create a mutual fund, you go create an ETF, or you go create a hedge fund or other fund vehicle. Mutual fund is a piece of technology. ETF is a piece of technology. A fund vehicle uses a piece of technology called PDF and wires. Those are the three factories offered to you. Which one do you pick, Adam? Mm. And then Adam is there. Well, they all have clear cons. If I'm institutional, I'll go with the fund. If I want to go normal Americans, I'll create an ETF or mutual fund. What we're saying is that menu is suboptimal. You're picking between just Oldsmobiles. Let's go add a different factory on that menu. Okay. Launch a product on Titan. You can do it more cheaply. You can stand up the product in, in a tenth of the time. Your customers aren't anonymized and you can actually communicate back to them. So we have a lot of people who currently manage their product off the mutual fund and ETF reaching out to us say, hey, can I launch a product on Titan? Can I launch my product on Titan? Because you guys know your customers. You can talk to them. You can trade faster. There's none of this red tape. And it's just entirely a holistic, better experience. Because right now, instead, I have an ETF. And then I try to go build an audience on Twitter to solve for the content thing. But you guys just merge it all together. Yeah. So that's a master plan. Because I guess the the future, the direction I see things heading is that you got just a lot of, and I even hate to use the word, but influencers, essentially, right? You got, if social media is the the square we all meet at, you've got people there congregating. You got certain influencers who have massive appeal to a wide demographic. And it could be people who love uh, squirrels, a very super niche thing. Right? And, it, and maybe they have an investment fund around their knowledge of squirrels. I don't know. Is that a thing? Like, do people, can people do that? Is that what you mean? Kind of like it gets that niche where if I'm aware of a very micro chasm of the world, squirrels, ants, insects, like a entomology world, for example, I can pitch products in that space like a pet smart, for example, or whatever it might be? You could. The next question beyond building a better factory is making sure you drive the thing to the right place. Okay. And that's where we take a step back. We're the manufacturer. We will provide driving instructions. But if you choose to create a fund dedicated to investing in squirrels, your customers in the backseat of the car might decide to cook it out of the car and go get in a different one. Maybe I chose a bad analogy. What I meant was more just like niche. I'm just a, an influencer in the space and I'm talking to a, a niche sector of the world and I just chose squirrels because, you know, squirrels are shiny objects. You know, like people chase those down. Yeah. But just the fact that like I might have insights into a very specific world. Go for it. Are you saying any day people can, people that don't have investment backgrounds can come to Titan eventually in the future and create their own investment product? This is a very interesting question. And the answer to this is, it's sort of like, let me answer it indirectly, and it'll make sense why. Let's compare it to Airbnb. And so you could say like, in the future, will anyone be able to list their apartment on Airbnb? To which Airbnb responds, in theory, yes. But if we have people listing dangerous apartments on Airbnb, the community and the platform will die. So we have to have guidelines and community rules. Your apartment needs to be clean. It needs to be in a safe location. It has to adhere to a certain standard of quality that is of the Airbnb platform. I call Airbnb a conscious platform. Other platforms, let's say like Shopify, 
if you started a Shopify store where you sold ugly snowboards that no one wanted to buy, that's not Shopify's problem. That is capitalism at work. They don't care. Yeah. Titan needs to be a conscious platform. We can't let bad actors who just want to do anything launch investment products because we're a fiduciary. We manage the hard-earned savings of people. So we will have a minimum quality standard. We will have minimum guidelines. However, your point on niche, some of the places that need capital the most are the niche areas. So for instance, like underdeveloped urban communities, like need a lot of real estate development where you can make significant capital returns. And that's a win-win for both sides. But there's a lack of people and all these managers here in New York going hunting for urban centers that need development. So that would could be a really niche place that would be a massive win for the world that like Titan could have on our platform. Mm. I'm going to take back my analogy on the squirrels. It was a terrible analogy, but it, it at least got us into the niche markets, which you explained well. So thank you. I don't have issues with squirrels. I'm from New York. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get used to the squirrels here. They're fine for me. I'm just really interested in what you've built here. I think it's interesting. And the secret sauce of just communicating back seems just so... Trivial, right? Very trivial because it's like that should be table stakes, right? That should just be how it works anyways. I don't understand why. I mean, I guess I do understand why. Greed, probably. Greed and scarcity, right? If you make things scarce, you can drive the price up. You can lock certain people out. And you can essentially be very biased and you can showcase your bias. It can be class bias, essentially. Like if you have enough money, you can play in my park or come to my house or whatever it might be. But if you don't, then you're not welcome here. And when I, I won't let you access these markets and make the money that we make. I like the way you pair up this side of the business. It's really, really interesting. I want to mention something that was said by Anish, one of your newly founded board members, partner at A16Z. Andreessen Horowitz, who uh, recently threw a bunch of money at you, $58 million of Series B earlier this year. Congratulations, by the way. But one thing that Anish talked about was just like this change of psychology for what might be the current day market, essentially Gen Z, right? That they're able to embrace more risk. And you got things like you alluded to earlier, if a million people hearted something on Instagram, well, they kind of did that with GameStop, like this whole big thing changed. So we saw how everyday folk with hundreds or thousands, not tens of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of dollars can really change the way the markets drive. That's an interesting place. And what you're, what you're giving, right, is this, is this area where you can take more risk. Do you see people being more risky with their money because of the, the access to the market and the feedback loop for what you give? Because you said $20,000 is an opening account or on average account balance versus hundreds or thousands with say Robinhood or something like that. Mm. Do you see people taking more risk? What's interesting is when you zoom out, it's you and me living here in the United States may not feel like we see people taking more risks, but when Anish and the Andreessen team did a really amazing analysis, when you take a look at on a country basis and you zoom out, like what is the perception of financial risks? The United States is off the chart. So i.e. framed simply, other people will think the United States is one of the most risk-seeking countries relative to other people in other countries. And so with us, then, all right, let's double-click into the United States. We're already, you know, have the pioneer at heart. We're searching for the next big thing. And that's sort of like in the blood of living in the United States. What about this United States generation relative to previous? There's a variety of factors that do contribute to this generation, I think, being marginally risk on than previous. Again, this is at the margins. It's not like one generation takes no risk, another generation does. But my generation, a lot has been written about them having a challenging path for financial progress. Another is just having grown up in the era of the financial crisis. And so there's a variety of like psychological factors that are having them lean in versus lean out towards seeking some of these more aspirational sorts of of investing vehicles. There's a big ESG trend. There's a lot of people leaning in on a lot of these self-directed brokerages. So you can see the overarching consumer psychology, again, to generalize and generalizations have their own pitfalls. But to generalize, we see people leaning in. We see them doing it with a portion of their wallet share. We see them leaving at home the bigger portion of their wallet share. And so the end state is you have someone who sort of wants to do things, but doesn't have the courage to do it entirely. 
And so the question is, what solves for that? And that's why Anish and Co are really excited about us because they see us as that bridge. But there's a variety of stuff uh, happening with our generation here. What generation do you, uh, I can't tell your age. I'm not sure of your age. So which, are you a Gen Z? Are you Gen X? Are you Gen Y? I'm a millennial. Okay. Getting old. Okay. My recovery time coming off intramural soccer keeps getting longer and longer, putting up the years now, unfortunately. I think I'm like a year before Gen X. There you go. And people use those terminologies, one, to silo somebody and maybe even judge them to some degree. But it does talk to the psychology because different things happen in different decades or different time frames. Like in 2008, we witnessed another crash. My new son, who's barely two years old, he's going to have or five years old. My five year old is going to have a different look on the world because he's gone through a pandemic. I've never gone through a pandemic until I was in my 40s. Right. He's gone in a pandemic when he's five. So he's going to have a different psychological profile in the future based upon the world and how it works because of certain events that have happened. I think that's interesting to look at like that spectrum. Do you see Gen Z being like, is that where your market is at? I mean, is how do you divide the lion's share of your, of your audience? Is it wide spectrum? Is it forties, fifties? Is it 2030s? Like how do you even divide that market you have? Our median customer is somewhere between the age of 28 to 33, but we're seeing pull from two different polls. So we're seeing older clients who think we're way cooler than the mutual fund that they currently have. But then we're also seeing it from way younger. So people who identify with the content-rich open box nature of our platform, they say, hey, this is like way better than the thing I inherited from our parents. So our question mark from a business standpoint is which customer profile type do we build to, build for right now? And so we're building for millennials roughly, but we're going to start targeting younger and younger so we can be a part of people's early financial trajectory. Mm. But it definitely is a strategic question that a lot of folks have different opinions on. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily stand-ups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. And by our friends at GitPod. GitPod lets you spin up fresh, ephemeral dev environments in the cloud in seconds. And I'm here with Johannes Landgraf, co-founder of GitPod. Johannes, you recently opened up your free tier to every developer with a GitLab, GitHub, or Bitbucket account. What are your goals with that? Thanks, Adam. As you know, everything we do at GitPod centers around eliminating friction from the workflow of developers. We work towards a future where ephemeral, cloud-based development environments are the standard in modern engineering teams. Just think about it. It is 2021 and we use automation everywhere. We automate infrastructure, CICD build pipelines, and even writing code. The only thing we have not automated are developer environments. They are still brittle, tied to local machines and a constant source of friction during onboarding and ongoing development. With GitPod, this stops. 
Our free plan gives devs access to cloud-based developer environments for 50 hours per month. Companies such as Google, Facebook, and most recently GitHub have internally built solutions and moved software development to the cloud. I know I'm biased, but I can fully relate. Once you experience the productivity boost and peace of mind that automation offers, you never want to go back. Very cool. All right, if this gets you excited, learn more and get started for free at gitpod.io. Again, gitpod.io. I can remember whenever I first entered the, in quotes, workforce, and I was offered 401k, and I was slightly educated on how I can use my income as a possibility to have retirement, and everyone said, well, the earlier you start, the better off you are, but the factors that kept me out of the market largely were misinformation. So what do you think about the future of a world where we have access to a Titan, where there's that feedback loop? What do you project as a CEO? What do you project as like your dream for the future for what Titan can enable? Because you just simply have access to somebody who has your best interest in mind, not somebody who just shares a prospectus. Yeah, it's there's so many different things that could end up changing. So one is how early people get invested in a really healthy way. Like I didn't invest my first dollar until I was 26. You could make an argument that's 26 years too late. Like there's probably some universal basic income theorist who will say, let's give everyone $1,000 in an investment account. You can't touch it until you're 30. And we do that on behalf of you. And look how much it grows by the time you're 30, you'll thank us later. A second one is just how the ability for everyday people to shape the companies they're a part of. And what I mean by that is, if you think about like who are the largest share owners of the biggest companies today, so like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, you name it, there are usually three main entities, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. And these are all houses that take a lot of retail money, invest it passively, and then say, we're gonna be the largest share owners of all these big companies, but we're going to sit in the back of the bus. You go do your thing. We're going to zip up. We're not going to say anything to the management team. We'll vote pretty passively. We'll stay behind the sidelines. Imagine if a Titan at scale, when we power trillions of assets, said, we don't want to sit in the front. We're not only going to be your largest share owner. We're going to sit right next to you in the front of the vehicle. And we've got a million people watching you. And if they have an issue with governance, if they have an issue with how you're treating diversity, or if they have a problem with how the CEO is thinking strategically, we're going to have to have a talk. Mm. And that talk could equal changing board sheets, shaking up management teams. And again, it goes back to the whole root. Technology enables you to organize people in a way they weren't able to be previously organized. So this whole Reddit situation with GameStop and the hedge fund that you saw earlier this year, that was just a brief blip of the potential of organized masses in the capital markets. And they were frankly a little disorganized. You weren't quite sure how they could drive the situation for positive change. It was a little bit chaotic, but what was awesome to see was the power of people coming together to shape something such as the stock price or the market cap of a company they really liked. So there's just so much here. We could probably have a whole podcast episode talking about like what what changes could possibly happen. But this is the sort of stuff like I think about all day long. I asked some questions as prep for this conversation and other conversations, obviously. They really offer a lot of guidance towards the conversation. But one thing you said in regards specifically to being a CEO, I thought was pretty interesting. You said the job of a CEO really is just three things. Number one, getting capital. Number two, figuring out where capital should go, and then three, deploying said capital. And so I ask you that question like the dream a little bit because I can imagine every day you're plagued with dreams and possibility. How do you take these three things? You get capital, you figure out where it should go, and you deploy said capital. What ways are you doing that today? I know you just recently took an investment. It was a Series B, was that right? Series B? Yeah, Series B. $58 million Series B. Not a bad round. What valuation was that just roughly? Was it? 400. Unicorn status? Okay, so you're half a unicorn. Half. What are your plans with that kind of money, with that kind of future? Where do you plan to deploy that kind of capital? How do you plan to take Titan into the next year or two? 
So you've seen, um, and it's a really good push. I say it's the most unpoetic description of my job. Capital, capital, capital. You'll hear other people say, find a mission, organize people like a tribe to work towards said mission, and then go execute really hard and work hard. I just described it like super unpoetically. <laughs> In reality, I definitely don't shy away from the fact I need to be a steward of other people betting on the fact that I can go create impact. And those other people are people with money who back our company and people who are saying, I want to go spend my career at Titan. I do not take that responsibility lightly. And so as we think about strategic planning, where should we go deploy our time, effort, and money, i.e. our capital, monetary capital, human capital, strategic capital, largely, and the simple answer is doubling down on everything that got us to at this point. So to get to this point in time, we've done maybe the third inning worth of a job across the board, onboarding investment products we offer, that tripod of experience between client content and their money, how well our factories built, our ability to go host other people and open up the gates to the factory, all of those things, we've sort of gone a few inches deep and seen significant traction. And so now with this round, the goal is to really go give the five-star experience on each of those and turn this into an enterprise, not just a fledgling early stage company. And so it comes with a different set of challenges, but in a same flavor as the ones prior. You already have the meat, so to speak, and you're just going to season it a bit more. You know what I mean? You're, you're going to concierge the, all the aspects. I like the tripod analogy of, you know, the person, their money. What was the three things? It was person, money, and something else. There's a person, money, you can say relationship, experience, you can say content. That's right. That interplay. Yeah. The end vision is to go build the next Fidelity. Fidelity has about $5 trillion of assets. They're worth $100 billion, roughly the size of Airbnb. They're an iconic household brand built for baby boomers. Major question mark. Major question mark on who will do this. Robinhood has argued it will be the E-Trade of our generation, and maybe it's going to make an argument that it should be the bank of our generation. But no one has yet to make the argument who will be the investing authority of our generation, who will mm. be the thing you look to when capital markets are good, when capital markets are bad, to shepherd society through the next crisis. The thing that being cited on CNBC, the people that are being featured in the Wall Street Journal. That is the enterprise that I sought to build when I was younger. I said, hey, there's nothing like that for us and myself included. I guess I need to go build it myself because no one else is building it. What is it that keeps you up at night? Do you stay up late at night? Do you have trouble sleeping? Do you sleep well? What's your biggest challenge right now? One word, which is the word sequencing. There's no question that the next fidelity will be built. The question is, what is the execution path to get to the other side of the river that is compounding wildly profitable enterprise that will outlast me personally? There's a path and configuration where you go stone A, stone G, stone B, then stone P, and you make it to the other side of the river. Or there's you go A, then B, then G. You sort of see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. What's the right path? There's different strategic approaches. So usually, like for example, when I'm angel investing in other companies, once I'm, I'm, I get their mission, I understand where they're going. It's like, okay, great. And now to really test them, I say, tell me how you're considering the different sequencing paths. So that answers two things. Do you understand and have the humility to say, the path I'm thinking through is not the only path. There are others. And then can you show me how you have judgment to say, this is the right path we should go down. And here are the data points that would make me switch. So you can learn a lot about an entrepreneur just asking through how they're thinking about sequencing. And so I guess to put that bluntly, you're thinking about what the right path is to move forward to create the next fidelity. Or sanity checking nonstop. What is the best path? What is the optimal path? Can you describe your current path or your current hypothesis of what the right sequence is? Build the factory with your own products being the guinea pig first. When good, open it up so other people can launch their products in your factory. Yeah. Current path. Alternative path. Go build for the other people first because they can inform your product development much more accurately. Viable path. 
another just to show you how I can flip both hats. Some could also say alternative path unlocks faster growth because those people bring with them their audiences, i.e. if you go build for a person who has a mutual fund and is also a Twitter influencer, overnight they can bring you 100,000 users. So there's very clear, interesting reasons why one could go down the alternate path. If anything, the thing that I cycle through late at night is, okay, why are we choosing this path? What are the pros and cons? Does the data we're receiving still confirm we should go down this path? If so, proceed. So also in these notes that you share with me, and I realize we got about one minute, so I'll, I'll make this super brief. If we're still on track for that, let me know. But you said speed often matters more than anything else. And I'm wondering if that's your guiding principle because those paths allude to growth, but is it the right growth? And so that's what I think everybody as a CEO questions like, sure, growth, but at what cost? Is that the right growth or the right sequence that we should take as a company? Do you adhere to slow and steady wins or are you more of a speed off and matters more than anything else kind of person since you said that? Speed. Speed. I know it's a really great question, Adam. I'm a speed person. It goes back to the whole idea of you can either maximize the probability of being right or you can minimize the probability of being wrong. And speed solves for the latter. And so I'm of the view that everything in my head is a hypothesis. I obviously have ranging convictions about certain things. Like tomorrow, I know the sky will be blue. High conviction. Willing to bet a lot on that. I'll bet on that with you. (laughs) There we go. Unless it's gray skies, then you're wrong. (laughs) Other things, less so. And so right now, and obviously I think it's a bit of a stage-dependent answer. Right now, we need to learn very fast a variety of different things. Hypotheses that we have high conviction on, but nevertheless, we need to get data. So speed really matters. Maybe at a different stage in our journey, as we shift to, okay, we've gotten a ton of scale. Now we need to convince everyone that has joined our service to give us a high percentage wallet share. From there, we need to focus on high quality, not necessarily high speed. And so the question at least applied to a business like ours, at least right now, I'm speed first. And I think a bunch of the entrepreneurs I respect, I think would also shake out speed first. But the interesting is, does it change as you scale? And that's something that, you know, could pose a lot of really interesting debate. Yeah. I like the way you answer that because there's no right answer. You're like where you're at, your stage, your company is different than mine. Very different businesses. Slow and steady might win for us, which actually is a guiding principle for us. Slow and steady wins. And if we're going too fast, like if we can't keep the main thing we're doing, the main thing we're doing, slow down and check yourself. So we got a couple of guiding principles that I often share on the show that guide us, but I'm always questioning how accurate those are. Because you may be more speed first because you need to. The next Fidelity, as you said, is going to get built. Will it be built by you? And I think speed in evolving and speed in churning through the wrongs and the rights and determining your sequence is what's going to help you become the next Fidelity if that's going to happen. Exactly. Hopefully, if your viewers listen to a number of your different episodes, they can see how all the different folks you interview answer that question. And then you can create your own little mental model of what you think. Because, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, there's no right answer, but there are local maximums. And what I mean by that is there's no singular global maximum. Like, if you think about stats, where it's like, okay, which curve was the highest one? Everyone go do that. So there's no, like, you have to design your companies on these five values or else you lose. But there are a few peaks. It's like, okay, there's a speed-first flavor. There's a quality-first flavor. There's probably some other flavor and you need to pick whatever flavor is best for you, but not just that, get to the highest peak of that flavor, i.e. that's best in class, whatever it is. So yeah, welcome and stuff, I think, about late at night. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for sharing your time today. I'm a fan of what you're doing with Titan. I think it's admirable to, I said earlier on, stick it to the man. You laughed at that. I don't know if you really caught that much, but you know, I think that's kind of what you're doing. You're, you're opening up an opportunity for everyday people to have access to high-wielding financial products, hopefully building a factory that can enable others to do the same thing you're doing once you've proven the model. And uh, I just appreciate you sharing your wisdom and the path you're taking on your journey. So thank you. Appreciate it. I really like the sequencing of your questions, pun intended. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. See ya. 
All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Yes, I love it when you listen to this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Do me a favor. If you love this show, share this show with a friend. That's the best way to help us, honestly. We have Plus Plus out there. It's our membership. We'd love for you to join that if you would get value from it. But honestly, the best value for us is just to share our shows with your friends. Big thanks again to Joe for his time, his story, and his wisdom. And of course, big thanks to our friends at Fastly for being our bandwidth partner. Check them out at Fastly.com. And also Brake Master Cylinder. Big thanks. Those beats are awesome because Brake Master Cylinder works so hard to make sure we sound good. And we thank you, Brake Master. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, last but not least, thank you to you for listening to the show. I so appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the show at founderstalk.fm. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you again soon.